This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson, featuring notes and articles that help you follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout Scripture. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Aiken here. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast, where we want to continue to have conversations about seeing Christ in all the scriptures in a way that is clear and also life-changing. And so part of this, we want to regularly introduce you to some of the contributors to the Christ-Centered and Clear website. You need to check that out, ChristCenteredAndClear.com, where we are regularly posting helpful resources for pastors, leaders, and teachers on how to see the scriptures in a Christ-centered way that is also clear. And uh, so we have with us today one of those contributors and who's also a bit of a celebrity himself because he is the he is the intro voice to our podcast. We have Jeff Hay, pastor of Valley Cullen Community Church in Dublin, Ireland. Jeff is a wonderful Christ-centered preacher, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. So, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for that. I wouldn't say I'm a celebrity, that's for sure, but there you go. There's the Irish voice at the beginning of our podcast. So, I want to start and just kind of let the listeners get a chance to get to know who you are a little bit, and so with some kind of rapid-fire questions uh, so they can get to know you. So, let's just start here. Uh, Where were you born, and at what age did you come to Christ? I was born in the Republic of Ireland in uh, the country, and my parents were Christians, very small minority of Christians in the Republic of Ireland, less than half a percent. But they were Christians, went to a gospel preaching church, and they taught me the gospel. Uh, I knew I was a sinner from a young age, that there was a heaven to be gained, a hell to avoid, and they taught me that Jesus took the punishment for my sin on the cross. And so I trusted in Jesus at a an early age. I can't remember the time exactly or when, but I knew at a young age I trusted in him and even at five or six continuing. But then at age 10 or 11, I had a real desire for even my school friends to know Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. So I was going to lead into that question. When did you begin to sense kind of a calling into to ministry, vocational ministry, and in particular to preaching? Well, throughout my teenage years, I was would have done a lot of teaching to children's groups and youth weekends away, which was actually probably decent training because if you've, you have to hold the attention <laughs> of teenagers who have been up all night yeah. uh, and hope that they listen to you in the morning, that probably helped. But it was not until I was 20, 21, 22, and I was in college that I had a real desire to uh teach God's word and other people were encouraging me to do that. And I probably preached my first sermon in church at about age 21. For At 21, for, I was going to ask that question. So the first time you preached was probably 21. Do you remember what the text was? <laughs> oh boy, I do actually. <laughs> oh, no. um, well, I, there's there's two. The, the first one was 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses uh, 1 to 7. And I regurgitated John Stott's BST, and I looked back in it and realized how it was, at least it was faithful because I probably just plagiarized him (laughs) in a bad way, but it was uh, discouragingly boring. Oh, gosh. Okay. So 2 Timothy 1, first one. Where did you uh, do your training at? 
I, first of all, at about age 25, went to London and trained at the Proclamation Trust, a Cornhill training course, which was a year's course that I did that was focused on how do you understand the Bible and how do you explain it and preach it. I had lectures like Christopher Ash and David Jackman. And then after that, they encouraged me to do more. And I went to Oak Hill Theological College, which was a seminary, I suppose, in North London. So I trained in London and England. Gotcha. Great. Do you remember your first Old Testament sermon? I do, actually. It was in uh, London, in, in England. I was given a passage on the Old Testament, Genesis 16, uh, Hagar and Ishmael and, and that. But although I was also had to, when I was about 22, do a little 15 or 10 minute uh, expository sermon on Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Jacob, I have loved thee, so I have hated. And that did put me into nail the colors on what I believed regarding <laughs> those big topics as well, which was uh, good for me. So the first one, you kind of said sermon, you got, you're given the text, Genesis 16. Uh, would you have said it was a Christ-centered sermon? Probably not <laughs> as Christ-centered as I would like to preach it now. I haven't preached it since. It would have been God-centered. And faithful, I would hope, because that was my training at Cornhill training course was the main emphasis was you need to understand this and explain the text and apply it. If you go any way off, right. that's not good. Yeah. How long uh, do you prepare for a sermon, typically? Typically, how long is a piece of string, as they say? It depends what else I've on in the week when you're sort of the only pastor, uh, full-time worker in the church. But I would say around 12 to hours to 15 hours, okay. 16 maybe. Great. Do you practice your sermons before you preach them on Sunday? No, I don't actually. Not, uh, But I have done since we've gone to online, speaking to a camera uh, at the minute, but normally I don't practice them. I don't have time, actually. I, I go with what I have, the notes. That may, so, so that's the next question. What do you take up to the pulpit with you? So how much is it a full manuscript? Is it a bare outline? Kind of what do you take up there with you? It's more or less a full manuscript, maybe an illustration. I'll just write illustration. But it's more or less a full manuscript because that gives me an idea of how long I'm going to be, even if I don't stick to it. If I have more time, I will cut it down and take less into the pulpit. Yeah, gotcha. All right, let's 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 ask just a more hobby, personal question. What is your favorite sport and who is your favorite team? I love football. You guys call it soccer, <laughs> but uh, we use our feet, whereas you call yeah, football yes. <laughs> something you do when you use your hands. But we call it football here, and I support Liverpool Football Club. And I know one of your sons uh, supports the rival, huh? Ah, uh, they. I think they're. I, I'm. I think he's a Liverpool fan. Okay, Liverpool. Okay. That <laughs> okay. No, for some reason I thought that one of them was uh, kind of going against Liverpool a little bit. Oh, he might have been having just a little bit of an off day, but I soon knocked that out of him. <laughs> okay, there you go. Good. That's good parenting. So, well, let's jump in. Let's jump into more just kind of Christ-centered topics. And as we're thinking about Christ-centered and clear, and know you're one of the full-time contributors to that. Um, when you hear the term Christ-centered sermon or Christ-centered preaching or even Christ-centered hermeneutic, what would you kind of explain that to be? What is that? I would say that is preaching that has Christ and his work is the central focus and the end goal of the sermon. So that I want people to be 
worshipping Christ by the end, but it has to come from the text. That has been drilled into me as well. Yeah, so expository preaching. It's coming straight from the text, but it is Christ-centered. Yeah, so balancing that might be tricky, but that's the aim. That's the goal. How do you balance that? With work, with preparation, with help from others, and uh, uh, and maybe spanning out further. You know, if I can't see Christ in this particular text, I might need to get the camera lens, zoom out a little bit further, see the bigger picture and where we are in redemptive history and redemptive story to be able to make sure Christ is there legitimately in my eyes. In your eyes, yeah. He's always there legitimately in my eyes. Um, <laughs> next question. Uh, when you're introduced, when were you kind of introduced to this idea? So you said even your kind of your sermon drilled into you. Uh, it, it must come from the text. That was probably a very kind of historical, grammatical. Uh, but when were you kind of introduced to the idea of Christ-centered interpretation, Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered hermeneutic? Well, probably in my early 20s, even when we were studying together with a, a bunch of friends, not a theological college, but we would have listened to Don Carson, his lectures on preaching and biblical theology. At the time, I was with a group of friends and we were doing Bible studies with Chinese students for a year, going through the whole Bible. So we got introduced to biblical theology then, Graham Goldsworthy, people like that. And that sort of helped the framework of seeing Christ is in all of Scripture. This is one book that all fits together. As we were teaching students uh, the whole Bible, they were trying to learn English. We were teaching them the gospel through the whole Bible in one year, Chinese students. And that really got the clogs going of seeing biblical theology and Christ in all of Scripture. Now be a good time to hear from our sponsor. This podcast is generously supported by Zondervan Bibles and the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson. Biblical theology allows you to ponder the individual stories and themes of Scripture while observing how they all fit together in God's grand biblical narrative. That's why this unique study Bible features three articles in introducing biblical theology and 25 articles unpacking key themes of Scripture. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible contains detailed book introductions, 20,000 verse-by-verse study notes, 28 theologically rich articles by authors such as Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, hundreds of full-color photos, more than 90 maps, and over 60 charts. All of this allows readers to marvel at the big story while savoring each detail. With a focus on biblical theology and the overarching story of Scripture, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible helps readers follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout the Scriptures. Find out more at NIVBiblicalTheologyStudyBible.com. I'll ask a question like this because, you know, almost nobody says they're not Christ-centered to be like saying I'm not gospel-centered, but there is a spectrum on this topic. We've even kind of mentioned some of the names. I mean, you have like kind of on the far end, the Walt Kaiser, very dogmatic, historical, grammatical, and then maybe like on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a, you know, maybe a Tim Keller or a Peter Lightheart who some would even maybe accuse of being allegory. Uh, where would you put yourself on the spectrum? And then you've mentioned Goldsworthy, but who are some other, and, and Carson, but who are some others who have influenced you on this topic? And kind of, again, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? I have actually probably moved along the spectrum towards the more that maximal approach, the Keller and the that that side of things, seeing Christ. I knew I liked you. And in all of scripture, I, I've moved more towards it. Why? I mean, I've been influenced by many people, uh, the the likes of Keller, as many folks will have been. But even when I was at 
Oakill Theological College people introduced me to other writers I wouldn't have been as f- familiar with at the time. I would have known Carson and Piper, but other more different guys like Lightheart and I started to enjoy a lot of what he was saying as well and when you start to see the divine author behind all of scripture I gradually started to see Christ more and more I remember even whenever I was uh, at theological college halfway through I got married and I had this one hour commute to go to theological college and so I listened to all Clowney and Keller uh, his RTS lectures oh, yeah, on preaching yeah. Christ. Uh, there was a whole bunch of them in Q&A. So, so that was my journey there and back even while I was studying at that college. So those were the sort of guys that influenced me. And then as I studied more, I just see it more and more probably. Yeah, as you just look at the text, yeah, that's helpful. So when, we, when we're talking objections, so in the season one that we're kind of in right now, we've just started this podcast. We've talked about objections to Christ and our preaching. There's, there's several. Shouldn't we let the Old Testament stand on its own? Uh, sort of like this, the apostles can do this, but you can't, you know, don't do this at home. Uh, you know, don't do as they do kind of thing. Um, this is going to flatten out application. There's all kinds of ob- objections we're kind of trying to address. Are, were any of those, uh, and maybe you would add some others, but are any of those objections to the, to this preaching compelling to you? And kind of why do you ultimately not give in to those objections? Yeah, they are compelling because as I say, I, I moved along that route. Because I would have been, what if Christ isn't clearly there? You know what? You're reading into that. So, but I gradually grant, see that, well, Paul said we're to preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus said the whole Bible's about himself. And it might have been if Jesus isn't as obvious, well, as I've said, maybe we need to zoom out and pull a little bit back and see where we are. I need to maybe take a slightly bigger chunk because I still had drilled into me. It has to come from the text. But if I'm taking the text as a whole Bible, then I can see legitimate connections there. So I I, I did have struggles. I wanted didn't want to just impute Christ into it. I wanted to see legitimate. And the other big thing I was would have asked and quite I don't want to say the same sound like I'm saying the same thing every week. And I totally get that objection. Oh, here he goes again. Here he is just saying the Jesus thing. But what I would say is that the Bible if you are just saying here we are in the Bible story where Genesis three and then going to Christ, well that would get same and boring every time. But the more I got into the text and preparation, I just saw there was richness in the detail that different aspects of his Christ and his work would come out. You know, I thought when I was going through Judges, oh, I'll be the same thing every week. We need a true rescuer or whatever that lives forever. But different aspects could come out all the time. And it's the same now I'm going through 1 Samuel. And you could say, hey, we're just waiting for the, the right king to come along. But when I get into the details, I see aspects of Christ is just coming up in so many different ways. In 1 Samuel 12, which it just preached on, Christ, I think, is there in his priestly role. Samuel points to him. In the chapter before, we had Saul pointing to Christ in defeating the enemy, the Nahash of the Ammonites, and Nahash means serpent. So. If you can't see this is looking at then the anointed king coming to defeat the enemy and, and crush him and we need him to overcome the battles. Well, I think 1 Samuel's maybe easier than some books, but different aspects of Christ. So the sermon would be different. So I just saw it can be different while you're still preaching Jesus. 
That's good. Uh, and I want to come back to some of those uh, books and just maybe talk in more detail about those, but very helpful. How often would you say you preach the Old Testament? I, I vary between Old Testament and New Testament and the genres, just do a series in one another. It could be six to 12 weeks in one. I probably end up spending a little bit longer now in the Old Testament because they're longer books, but half and half with slightly maybe longer series in the Old Testament. So you have some preachers who just by practice shy away from the Old Testament. I mean, they're even some of our heroes uh, kind of shy away. They would preach three years in Romans, but maybe not three years total in their entire ministry in the Old Testament outside of maybe, you know, like Daniel or something. Um, and then you even have leaders who are actively saying we need to kind of distance ourselves from the Old Testament, shy away from the Old Testament, particularly in uh, 20th century Western civilization. Why are you not compelled by that argument? Main reason is all scriptures God breathed and Paul said it has been written for us, the Old Testament, and for our benefits. Uh, so it is all God's word, and it is to be expounded and preached. But I, I love the Old Testament. I'm, I find myself going to it nearly more, or I get excited about it, especially Old Testament narrative. I mean, I go to an Irish preacher's conference and help lead a workshop and teaching books. And I've noticed the last five years have been all Old Testament books I've chosen, Hosea, Judges, Esther, Daniel, because they're the ones I'm excited about. And why is that? Well, because it's so rich, because you can see these legitimate connections to Christ. I find that exciting. Also, uh, it ends up being an apologetic for the Bible in itself. So that can strengthen believers who are maybe doubting, is this, can we trust the Bible? It's also good and has an evangelistic effect, I think, because you're preaching Christ from the Old Testament. But another reason why I like doing it is because whenever I've been at this church 11 years now almost, illustrations are hard to come by. And the Old Testament gives me ready-made, written ones explaining who God is, pointing to Christ. I, I can't keep coming up with new ones. So I, I enjoy preaching the Old Testament. And also it's not as familiar to some of the people. So it keeps it fresh, fresh for me, fresh for the congregation. And, and they're almost excited to see how this Old Testament points to Jesus. It's interesting you use the word apologetic because some of these guys who are kind of saying stay away from the Old Testament are saying that because they want to apologetically share the gospel with unbelievers and think that the Old Testament will be a stumbling block. But what's interesting, I do think you're right. It, it does become a, apologetic for the whole Bible because one of the things you cannot get around once you start reading the New Testament is that Jesus believes it all. I mean, Jesus affirms it all. And I, I just preached the rich man Lazarus last week as of when we're recording this podcast. And what's interesting to me is he gets to the end and the rich man saying, send, send Lazarus back. And, the, and, and Jesus says, Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. And he says, no, send him back. And he says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody even comes back from the dead. And so I point out in the sermon, like you want confidence in future glory read your Bible. In particular, there it's read the Old Testament. And so we can't do that. We can't just say, well, let's disregard the Old Testament because then it would mean we have to disregard what Jesus believes about the Old Testament, which would be, again, a faulty a faulty premise. So uh, that is very helpful. I want to talk through logistics then it's as far as kind of how you approach a text, how you start to do study in order to see. Uh, and I think some of this you've been hitting on is just the more you've seen the divine author it's, it's become more apparent as you read the text. But just to help people who are kind of starting on this journey, 
Uh, I want to talk through logistics of how you study an Old Testament text. Uh, so let's just let's go this way. What's the most uh, recent Old Testament text you preach? Is it First Samuel twelve? Yeah, last Sunday, First Samuel twelve. Yes. So an ideal week. Again, you know, some weeks you have more on your plate than others, but ideal week. Talk about what your typical study would look like. I'm not somebody that has lots of work done in advance on on the text. I may have read opening commentaries and split the passages up, but I'm pretty much going to the text more or less fresh. Uh, that's just the way I work. On a Monday morning or at some point on Monday, I'll hopefully have read it at least to be familiar with the the what the passage and what's going on. And then at some point during the week, it probably Tuesday's my day off, Wednesday or sometimes it's not till Thursday, then I really work on the text and I'll get the passage up. I'll do the usual exegetical work. I'll have a Word document with it copied if I'm thinking now Old Testament narrative because it's a big chunk and highlight repetition of words, phrases, some of those things and, and jot down all my own thoughts to begin with and splitting it up structures or any key narrator points. So I'll do some of that exegetical work to begin with. I, then I'll, I'll, I will go to the commentaries. Now, I've actually got a little Bible devotional study book or two on, on this as well, because it actually helps me to apply it to myself. And that's why I enjoy uh, coming to a passage fresh and because it speaks to me. Uh, that's why I'm big believer in expository preaching as well because I need it for myself. But I'll read the the commentaries then and, and do the work and, and that lots of people will then do to try and get to the main thrust. And I'll try and then summarize it down into a main thrust. Some people might say a theme, but then an aim. What do I want people to go away with my aim from this and structured in the sermon? Maybe you want more details, but... Yeah, well, so maybe even just more. Okay, so you've you're starting to craft your sermon. You you've kind of done exegetical work, read the text, even just devotional work. Start to look yep. at the commentaries as you're starting to try to put this down on paper. Uh, and you say, okay, this is an Old Testament text. I'm very committed to Christ centered interpretation of this text. How do you start to find the Christ connections in the text? Well, probably just I'm naturally looking for them because that's where I'm land now and i know he'll be there somewhere and uh, i'll be thinking about that but the other re reality is i'm not that all original uh, if i come up with too many original thoughts then there's probably a, i'm probably off so i'll be reading some books that especially are very good in that and peter lighthart's book in one samuel uh son to me is excellent in my mind at highlighting Christ. You've got Dale Ralph Davis, great at simply understanding the text and God's a hero, but then Lightheart comes down to, here's how it points to Christ, and I'm I'm with you, Lightheart. So I need helps from Lightheart, from Tim Chester's a little one Samuel commentary that helps in tying to Christ. So there's a, I need, I need authors that help me. And so some of it is just you, the more and more you read the Bible, the more you're seeing kind of what's taking place and then obviously getting helps as well. Um, so let's talk about 1 Samuel 12 then, the, the most recent one. Give us just a quick summary of what's going on in the text for those who don't have it readily at mind. And then I want to do three, two things with from that. So quick summary, what were the Christ connections? And I think the most important thing and what we're trying to do with Christ Internet and Clear is how do you take it from this is the interpretation of the text to it actually affects your people? So the the application. So kind of take us to summary of the text, Christ connections, applying it to your people at Valley Cullen. 
Okay. Well, the without uh, preaching a whole sermon, without <laughs> preaching the whole sermon, yeah, feel feel free if you need to sleep to look it up. But this is Samuel's uh, farewell address. So King Saul has been anointed as king a couple of chapters earlier, and then in chapter eleven he's defeated the Ammonites and he's the king. And I think then Samuel is giving a speech to all the people there, and he's doing this transitioning period where he's saying. This is the end of the time of the judges, and he's the last judge. That was identified earlier in 1 Samuel 7. And he's defending himself in the courtroom, as it were, in verses 1 to 5, and, and saying, have I done any wrong? But it was, yeah, he's not perfect, but it was things in relation to what a, a king will do wrong. So he's basically saying he's been trustworthy, and he put himself up on trial, and then he puts Israel up on trial. And he shows how they have failed. And so he walks through how they've failed in the past and their history, how they failed really at the present and rejecting God as king and demanding a king over us. And then God comes, he brings a sign and says, thunder's going to come in case they were doubting or whatever. And, and that shook the people. And, it, and they basically cry out then when the thunder comes. In verse 19, they get it. The pennies drop for them. We have rejected God and they say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And then so Samuel then brings the good news, uh, showing God's grace, even though they've done evil, God's going to rescue, spare them. Why? Because he's concerned for his own name. Here's the God-centeredness of it. And then he prays to God. He says, in verse 23, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So he's going to intercede and pray for them on their behalf and calls them to fear and serve the Lord in response. So that's a little bit of a summary of it. Yep, yep. Now now Christ, Christ center connections, yep. Well, I think it could have went a couple of ways on being concerned for his name, but I went with the Christ-centeredness in that whenever they – the fear of God came upon them when the Lord sent the thunder. They actually cried out to Samuel, pray for us. And then down in verse 23, so they are spared. He, he, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So here we have Samuel interceding on their behalf so that they will be spared. And I basically took it to Christ by showing that we need someone to intercede. We have all failed. We have all rejected God as king. And Samuel, who is a great prophet and points to the greater prophet, he's here actually acting as the priest who intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. And so he is even the greater priest, pointing to the greater priest, Jesus, who intercedes for us. Romans 8, 24, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Hebrews 7. So I took it to Christ in that way, in that Samuel was acting and pointing to Christ as our interceder so we can be spared. Mm -hmm. Well, wonderful truth. How did you then take it to the final step of applying it to, to the people at Ballycullen and just the things you reminded them of and, and kind of really asked them to take home with them? So I wanted them to see God's grace here in sparing them and ultimately through Jesus, our great high priest. And then the call in the text was that they were to fear the Lord and serve him from all the heart. And so in response to this, that's what 
they were to do. They were and, and applied it in specific areas. What does serving the Lord with all your heart look like, whether that's in your finances, whether that's in your church, but also in seeing their feelings. They saw their feelings and they wondered, would they have to die because of all our fe- feelings? And we see God's forgiveness. And so if people have failed God or fe- feel they're beyond God's grace, there is no sin that is beyond the forgiveness that Christ has not paid for and can plead on our behalf, our forgiveness through trusting in him. So a call as well to follow him, but also embrace the full forgiveness that is undeserved. I find that every time I hear Christ-centered preaching of the Old Testament in particular, especially even just 1 Samuel 12, something I haven't read in a while, that whole picture of the of the road to Emmaus, of that, it, did, did our hearts not burn within us when he explained to us? I feel the same way. And so just uh, thankful for your faithful uh, preaching and, and work in the text. How, for those that are listening uh, who might want to hear, you know, obviously you're going to be putting sermons up on Christ-centered and clear, but if they want to listen to your preaching, where what website do they need to uh, go to to hear some of your preaching? Well, it's Ballycullen Community Church. So Bally, B-A-L-L-Y-C-U-L-L-E-N-C-C dot com. Ballycullen Community Church. Uh, Ballycullencc dot com. The sermons are up there. If you have str- we'll trouble to, sleeping. <laughs> we'll try to we'll try to tweet out some resources to that. Um, but Jeff is a wonderful, faithful preacher, so I would highly recommend checking out his preaching and it won't put you to sleep. I mean, how can you listen yes. even to that accent and, and not just want to keep listening? So um, Jeff, man, we're we're so thankful for you. We want to have you on in the future as we kind of get into different genres and even different texts and and kind of have you on to to explain how you kind of went about the approaching the text and tri-center connections and even applications. So uh, thank you for your time, brother. Thanks very much for having me. And I hope people can actually understand me, but there you go. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to the Chrysler and clear podcast. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.